Kia and thank you for tuning into this episode of the Coach's Corner podcast. Today, I'm joined by Mainland Football CEO, Martin Field-Dodson. Prior to his role at Mainland Football, Marty has coached around the globe and our first meeting was actually at a pub called The Beely, um, where Marty was just appointed the head coach for Sumner Rugby Football Club and so we're about to uh, chat everything around Sumner Rugby um, at that encounter and today um, I'm sure we're going to have this conversation. It's going to take a lot of twists and turns and we'll go down a few rabbit holes. But Marty, thanks for joining us today. How have you been? I'm good. Thanks, Ricky. It's an honour to have you on. I've seen some of your previous guests and I'm in um, very esteemed company. <laughs> so yeah, thanks for having me on. No, it's wicked. And, and I think what's cool about the, uh, the conversation that we're going to have today is that as what I really love is is your journey. And so you're obviously from, from New Zealand, spent a little bit of time over in Australia, and then you found yourself in Italy, like, and then back here in, in God's own. So can you tell us how about that trip and how you, how you got there? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd love to say it was all um, cunningly planned and, you know, I, I put together a, a nice 20-year plan and um, went and executed it. But ultimately it was just... Um, some taking some opportunities when they presented themselves. I I was down in Dunedin and just finished a PE degree and I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do with my life. And um, as the randomness sometimes of life, a mate rang me, he was in Brisbane, said, get to Brisbane, weather's awesome, um, you'll love it. And I, I sort of had enough money at that stage to either fly home, mum and dad lived in Melbourne at that stage, or uh, get a plane ticket to Brizzy. So I took the option to go to Brisbane, uh, then got a job with Brothers Rugby Club um, and worked there for a couple of years. Got picked up then with the um, Queensland Rugby Union as like a development manager. So I looked after the a region from Bundaberg all the way down to the Gold Coast and as far west as I did to drive the vehicle and until um, I hit the border. So I did that for a couple of years and then the boss moved me into um, – into a role looking at developing resources for coaching. So he's a, he was a fair bit of his time, Gavin Head, and he's probably the guy that I need to thank the most for my career because he got me into doing my coach qualifications quite young. And through that pathway, um, he, he teamed me up with a real computer geek, um, Dave Fanning, who's a bit of a legend with the old computer, and he said, right, just come up with some, some coaching resources. So we did it back in those days. We did a CD-ROM online out plays and so it was interactive so coaches could say oh, I want to, I want six man line out or I want a six plus one with a nine around the front or I want to go off the top or I want to drive and you'd, you'd you'd work it through and then we did um 101 back plays <laughs> CD yeah so we did all these coaching resources and then for some reason I got this idea in my head that to um to further my coaching because I'd gone back to Brothers Rugby Club to coach. So that was really my first sort of foray into coaching. Um, and we'll probably come come back and touch on that. But for some reason, I got a, it in my head that I need to go overseas further to further myself. You know, it was back in the day when, you know, so Graham Henry had gone off to Wales. Steve Hansen had followed him to Wales. And I thought, wow, if all these big names are going into Europe, maybe I should do that as well. So... Jeff Miller was coaching the Reds at the time, and I said, oh, do you have any contacts in Europe? And he said, no, no, I don't, mate. Um, and I said, oh, okay, cool. 
Um, and then he came back about two weeks later and said, you'll never guess what, but a really old friend of mine rang me. He's taking charge of a rugby club in Italy, and they're looking for a guy to come and help set up an academy over there. And I was like, oh, wow. So what happened was me and a, my, my best mate, a really good mate at the time, was also working with Queensland. He said, oh, I wouldn't mind jumping on that gig. So we went back to the club and said, would you take both of us? So they flew us over to Italy and showed us sights, sounds, and everything that um, northern Italy had to offer. It was in a little town called Treviso, which is just up the road from Venice. And so we initially signed for a two-year contract. I ended up staying for 10. Two kids um, born over there. Uh, and then... It got time to, yeah, the, the, the coaching gig was very up and down, probably more down than up. Um, learn a, a lot around what not to do, a whole lot of challenges. Um, halfway through that time period, the club I was at actually got taken into the, um, into the Magnus League, which was a league that composed of Irish, Scottish and Welsh clubs. So we went from playing in the Italian comp to going and playing Munster, Leinster, you know. Jeez. I remember rocking up and playing Munster the first time and there's Paul O'Connell, Peter Stringer, Roden O'Gara, Rua Tapoki, Doug Howlett. You know, these, guys, these are the guys I want to go up and ask for autographs. Yeah. Against, eh? So, yeah, we, we had some interesting times. Yeah, and then at the end of 10 years, it was definitely time to come home. Missing New Zealand. Um, keen for the wide open spaces that NZ has to offer, the Kiwi way of doing things. So we moved back here and ended up at Sumner Rugby. And uh, here I am today, the CEO of a football organisation. So, yeah, pretty random set of events. And as I said, there was just opportunities that opened up and I sort of just, just grabbed them, followed my nose. Yeah, what a what a wicked story, and I think that that's testament of what you're saying, and what we talk about a lot is um, nothing's. There's no linear pathway, like you you're just taking opportunities and things that come your way, and and you think maybe you are on a pathway, and then all of a sudden an opportunity or a curveball gets thrown your way, and you just kind of roll with the punches and 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 deal with what you've got in front of you. I, I want to kind of um, rewind back to, you're talking about some of the challenges in Italy. What were those challenges that you faced? Obviously, you talk, You mentioned you're going up, up against some really old, established, well-known rugby teams in Wales and Ireland, um, but that can't really be all of it. I'm imagining language might have been a little bit of a barrier. Yeah, so I didn't, I didn't know a word of Italian before going over. Um, and so, but I, I was kind of lucky because in terms of um, when I first went, the role was around setting up, helping set up an academy. But they also had a junior, Pentaton had a junior club. It was a pretty big club. And what I learned was um, English had just started to become something fashionable for Italians to to talk. You you would hear English ads on the radio. You'd, you'd hear English all over the show. And, um, like most European companies, countries, you know, the people speak a lot of different languages. For them to be bilingual, trilingual is nothing unusual, you know, but for us, us Kiwis, you know, it's kind of like, 
we speak Kiwi, there's Aussie, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, so I found it really easy to run around with like the under eights and just there was no shame of me trying to talk. I'd pick up on what they're yelling because, you know, there's only so many ways you can say tackle or pass or kick. And so that's that's kind of how we we started to to learn the language. We had Italian lessons every week for a couple of hours. Um, and it is quite possibly the hardest thing I've had to learn. You know, I the 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 mental fatigue, I used to almost feel a certain part of the brain that had cobwebs over it that had never grown and developed, and I could feel it working. And uh you struggle and you know, you go out for dinner and try and relax and you're trying to listen to people talk. And it just created this massive fatigue. But eventually, slowly, things fall into place. And after about two years, you can hold a conversation. Um, but it is interesting because ultimately you end up coaching in words that you're learning off others. You know, and, and the way I coach, as, as you'd know, I don't mind using a little bit of humor and um, metaphor and creating pictures and trying to do that in a foreign language proved pretty challenging. So, yeah, the language was was one thing. And at any one stage, we had up to 11 or 12 nationalities in our team. So there were Spanish speakers, French, English. Um, but we also had boys, you know, from Fiji, Tonga, Samoa, uh, a lot of smattering of Kiwis, South Africans, a lot of South Africans. So you're really trying to bring all these cultures together. It made me realise being in Italy how similar we are to South Africans and Australians. And I, you know, it's some of my best mates are, um, are from there and you, you're just drawn together by the similarities. Um, other challenges included, we, we didn't have a big budget. You know, we had a small budget in comparison to some of those bigger teams. Um, and so we we struggled with numbers and quality staff. You know, we had we had uh, 40, 50 players on roster and any one time we may only have one physio rostered on. Um, traveling, you know, every second week you're traveling into Scotland, Ireland or Wales and because of budgets, you know, you're catching bus to Bologna, which is a three-hour trip. You're then catching a plane to Heathrow to switch a plane to get into Edinburgh and 12 hours later you've travelled on a distance that could take you one and a half if you had a direct flight. Uh, weather as well, you know, that northern part of Italy gets incredibly cold in the winter and incredibly hot in summer. So you're doing pre-season and 35 degrees, 90% humidity and some blokes are trying to put on weight and yet they're dripping kilos in sweat. Um, yeah, so it's all challenges. A lot of those are outside of our control. And when we were going well, we would just concentrate on what we could control. And when we weren't going so well, you know, you sometimes look at all those other factors and, um, yeah. 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 Well, it's, it's cool that you shared that, that with us, those, those kind of challenges of, of what you kind of went through. What was... And I kind of want to go back even maybe even a little bit further or probably that same timeline because we had Wayne Smith talk about how he went and he same same club right he came to came to Treviso Benetton 
um, coach there, and he talked around how his um, his mind, his whole world, kind of started opening up, and he ended up getting like a global myth, uh, methodology around how he approached his coaching or how he can adapt his coaching to um, to what he's doing now, his practices now. Coming from New Zealand, and then or you're in New Zealand doing a P degree, then you went over to Aussie to kind of learn the ways of the rugby over there, and now you're in Italy. Did that same? Did you have that same experience as well when it came to your coaching, or was it different then? Yeah, great question, Rick. Um, it's probably not until I sit, look back and reflect that it was a very similar to to what. Wayne had mentioned, um, and if I just touch on that, like I'd I'd never really met many um, ex All Blacks or Wallabies in my coaching journey. I went to this tiny little town in the middle of Italy, and all of a sudden I'm running into Wayne Smith, John Kerr, and Michael Liner. Um, you know, there's a lot of ex All Blacks that have played in that region, and. You know the the Italians weren't um, weren't shy in the the old under the table brown envelope back in the day before rugby turned professional. So there was a lot of um, very famous rugby players that had played over there from all over the globe, not just All Blacks. But I think what what the lesson to, taught me was just I used to think culture was it, it's difficult to have an understanding of culture. And I'm meaning as in, say, a New Zealand culture, if that's all you've experienced. And even going to Australia, as, as much as it pains me to say it for the Aussie mates who will probably um, take the mickey out of me for saying this, we are very similar. But when you go and put yourself in a completely different culture, in a Latin-based culture such as Italian, different language, um, different concepts around food, you know, food is a the first question I got asked every day was, what did you have for dinner last night? And I, so I can't even remember, like, what are you even talking about? But, um, you know, huge discussions around food. And then you have Argentinians, and they think they can run the best barbecues in the world and get them arguing with South Africans about meat. Well, bloody hell, you're going to be there for a long time. Then you chuck in some of the island boys who are very quiet, um, very humble off the field and get them on the field, and they want to, you know, absolutely – smash people to pieces so what i gradually come to realize was that people's backgrounds was really important with respect to how i tried to connect with them and that's probably comes back to wayne's um wayne's philosophy around a, a real broad mindset um of how do i best connect with these people and ultimately it was around trying to learn something about them or knowing something about their culture. And that's how I suppose it framed up the way I am today and like just trying to connect with people and finding, be curious, find something about them and then use that as the link to um, to get inside their head because um, I was adamant that if I could get to know someone and we could get on at a, at a personal level when it came to coaching, it would become that much easier. Yeah, uh, that put some interesting positions. You know, I'd, I'd I'd go and put my hand up to go and help translate for some of the foreigners. Um, Joe Maddock, who I know you had on the podcast the other day, um, he Joey came out. He he went from becoming the uh, he was the highest try scorer in the English Premiership, and he came to Treviso, and I I think he yeah, 
he might not have scored that many tries. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, completely no fault of his own, that's for sure. But you know, I, I went, um, I went to a lot of the um, the meetings and and doctors' visits with his lovely wife Maria, and um, you just. The stronger the bond that you've got with players, the easier it is to coach them. I just there's just no doubt about that. Um, and also there's the rugby sense, right? How rugby should be played, and you're moulding a hell of a lot of different thoughts and concepts together. So I suppose it enables you to reflect and go, is this actually how we want to play the game, or is this how I'd love the game to be played? Yeah, and and that's probably a cool wee segue around into kind of this next part of your your sporting life is there goes the rugby part and now you're in football so I guess this is probably a two-part question first part what got you so interested in kind of working in football or we'll probably explore that part and I'll come back to the to the next part so what was it that kind of got you interested and curious to be like I'm going to go for a role in football when you've spent most of your time 20 years doing rugby um, it was a combination of two things. One, I think, uh, if I'm really honest, I'll look back and I'd put so much into coaching overseas and um, I made some incredible friends and had incredible opportunities. Ultimately, the trophy cap was very bare. <laughs> and and so I started to probably, the the love, that infatuation with the game probably started to drift. and. Um, what attracted me, why I loved so much coming back and coaching Sumner was it was getting back to the real reason of why you get involved in these things in the first place. It's just about the people. And, you know, we caught up for for a um, a beverage the other night and I think you said, you know, do, do, do I miss it? And that's a common question people ask. And I, I don't necessarily miss the Tuesday, Thursday nights, you know, under the rain. I miss the people you know you miss hanging out in the change rooms with the boys um those those are the special moments so that that kept me going at, at a summer level but i suppose from a professional level i was looking for something you know a little bit different and the great roger georgie the fantastic <laughs> super manager from sumner just happened to be the chairman of canterbury united and that was the body that looked that looks after the in hot in, in you know, in parentheses, the high-performance arm of football in the region. And he was the chairman of this board. And he said, oh, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I don't know. I'm looking. And he, he said, well, football are looking for someone who's completely new, that's got no previous history in the game, free from bias, but has an understanding around high performance. And I said, well, probably don't know about the high part, but I know a little bit about performance. And so, yeah, so came in here, um, the role, so yeah, it, it applied and got this job in here. It was initially a little bit of helping out with Canterbury United and a little bit with club support. So going back into my roots of getting into clubs and looking at club development. And so that's how I started on the journey in in, in football. And so what would be the... So that there's because that's quite a big, well, I'm imagining it well, not a big step because sports, sport is just the, it's just the the jargon's different, the the game's a little bit different, but the fact that and you talk about it a lot, it's and 
um, I don't know if I'd be wrong in saying this, it's probably one of your key drivers around competition is is the same. It doesn't matter if you're a football player or if you're a if you're a rugby player, you've got to be a competitor um and you need to have that that edge. And so what has been the the one thing or the few things that you've that you picked up through your rugby experience that had, that you've molded or maybe tried to bring into this into the football domain? Because I'm I'm also imagining football would probably be like, what is this guy from rugby going to know about football and how's he going to help, help our program and what is he going to do? Mm. So I suppose I'll come, I'll come at this probably from a, from a different couple of angles. Um, one, no one really in football knew about my coaching background. And so it may, it might've been a year past until people probably had done a little bit of research and figured out what I'd done. And, you know, they're saying that they look at me and go, so you've coached in the, in the champions league equivalent for rugby and the champions league, obviously in football is the biggest, it's absolutely huge. And I'd, I'd go, well, yeah, because Benetton did play in the old Heineken cup or the champions cup as it's now known. I, I said, yeah, yeah, I did. And, and so they look at you and go, my God, so what are you doing You've got it all wrong. Why would you go to Italy to coach rugby, come back to New Zealand to get in football? Shouldn't that be the other way around? And I said, well, that's definitely the quirkiness of it all. Um, but I'll touch on I'll touch on the point around the similarities because ultimately all we're dealing with is people. And in performance, all you're trying to do is help people to perform or go beyond transcend what they think is possible. And ultimately what's awesome is we get to do it in a team environment. And there was a real powerful moment, um, not only just for me in football, but also for women's football, because my experience in top-level women's sport had, had been none. And so here I am, um, the Canterbury United Pride, one, you know, they're very much the crusaders of the footballing world. I think, you know, they've won six of the last eight comps they had when I first started. You know, a lot of the players, Vic Essen, who was in goal last night for the Ferns, is, is from the Canterbury Pride, Annalie Longo. Um, brilliant um, player. You know, there's uh, Gabby Rini. There's a lot of players that are in the current Fern squad that have come through Canterbury. And there was a training session um, that was taking place and they're doing the Bronco, the famous Bronco. So the Canterbury Pride line up and say, oh, this is interesting because this is this is my neck of the woods. I know all about the Bronco. And um, I sort of got out there halfway through and there was one player Annie Gilchrist, who was leading as she usually did. And I'll try and make this description um, as plain as I can, but she, she's got a little bit of vom. You know, she's going so hard that she's she's pre-vomited on her, on her shirt. And she's running as fast as she can while she's yelling out and going, come on, come on. And that was the moment when I said, that's it. That's what I'm after. People who are on the edge, who are still keen to try and give energy to others, that's the power. That's what I want to be around. And now whether that's rugby, whether that's football, whether it's women's football, whether it's whatever, I think that's that's incredible, you know, and we all sort of dream of imagine getting a whole team of those sort of people of what you could, what you could um, what you could create. And so when I explained that to some of the football coaches, they kind of looked at me as if I was a little bit strange. And I 
just thought, oh, oh, that's pretty cool. And they would sort of go, okay, yep. And the more conversations I had with football people was the more I realized that football coach education is massively around technical and tactical elements. You go to a coaching course, they're going to tell you about the tactics and the techniques. And yet this, this whole pathway that, you know, rugby had gone been going down for a number of years around people, around culture, around environment, around belonging. I know you had Owen Eastwood here on the other day talking about the power of belonging and what he's done in multiple sports, but most recently at Harlequins. Of course, there's Razor and what he's done with the Crusaders. And I'm saying there's this whole other world that you guys aren't even touching on. And that all came to a head when um, we had, we made a change with the Canterbury men's team. We brought in a, a young coach, great coach, Lee Padmore, who I know you know. And in his first year, we had a horrible year. And as the sort of the high performance manager, so to speak, I'd set him up, I'd set him up to fail. And that's probably a whole other blooming podcast, mate. But um we had a real, real tough off-season asking ourselves some really hard questions. And I realized what Lee needed was a little bit of razor. And so I got them, I set up a meeting and I just said to Ray, can you please just take Lee from A to Z of culture, creating environment, theming. Just you do you. So he did. And and you know, I could just see Lee. He just, it was like, it was like someone opened up this this whole other world. And so together we built this framework around connecting with with humans. And, you know, we suddenly realized that we had a couple of pre-education teachers in the in the team. We had a lot of chippies. So they were coming off the tools all day and coming to a football session. The pre-education teachers were coming along. Sometimes they looked like they were walking on clouds and others they looked like they just wanted to go to bed. We had business owners. We had students. You know, we had all these different people coming from all these different backgrounds. I said to Lee, we have to, we have to embrace that every time we see them, every training session, because ultimately you want to take them from that, that tired pre-education teacher and have them absolutely fizzing by the time he's walking out onto the training pitch. So how do we do that? And that is what absolutely opened us up to this awesome experience. And now Lee's one of the biggest, you know, disciples of importance of this. And yet even the majority of football coaches look at him and wondering what the hell he's going on about, you know. Um, and it's only really now that you're hearing of top football coaches, um, Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool, Pep Guardiola at Man City, who are Eddie Howe, young English guy at Newcastle. He's done phenomenally well. In fact, his podcast of the um, High Performance Podcast is exceptional. When they're starting to touch on these things, and it just feels like football's a little bit late to the party of understanding the power of the human instead of playing 4-4-2 or in rugby, you know, are we going to play a 2-4-2 or whatever the, whatever the shape that it might be? And so that's probably... I, I couldn't add to technical and tactical, but it's just as well because I would just been confusing the conversation even more. I suppose what I've been able to bring is that importance of people, about connections and creating an environment which allows people to excel. That's And that's a wicked point that you made. And, and like I said, like we did talk to Owen and Owen Issa was talking about like what Gareth would do with the English football team and he'd get them... Had either go to their house or had 
invite them to um invite them to his and he'd tell them what he loved about them like why they were so important to this squad and how like what this what their strengths were and these types of things and so they did feel like they were able to have a positive contribution to the team because I th- they talked around that being really important that you've got guys from all these different um, clubs and all great players in their own right and then you have to try and bring them together and who's going to get all the touches on the ball because generally they're the ones that are getting the most touches or they're the one that and so now you have to kind of share that responsibility and share that role and how you how you connect them and so that was an awesome conversation and insight that Owen gave gave us around Gareth and the way that he set up that team and you know they were almost on the brink of bringing it home um there and but there was a bit that I kind of want to um go back to is how come you think football had gone so far down well not go far so far down that line but everything was based around that technical tactical knowledge and that people stuff was kind of for, forgotten about and the reason why I asked that is you you just mentioned and this is no it's not dissimilar to amateur rugby and some of the coaches that are listening in what they deal with is that they might have a a bricklayer in their team or a banker or a builder or whatever it is and they do that for five days a week for roughly 40 to 80 odd hours and then they have to come to a training Tuesday Thursday and then straight away they have switched their mind from what they were as a as their profession to becoming a a rugby player and we haven't given them a moment to kind of flip that switch or give them a moment to kind of decompress and so what had been the I guess go back to it it's like the revelation around connecting the people for Lee and and maybe the rest of football to to look at that a little bit more I think that the the interesting question is how come the 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 model is set up the way it is and it, you know it's a, it's a traditional coaching model it's you've got to understand where football is where New Zealand football or football in New Zealand is in the world landscape like we're not at the top of the list you know football is just a humongous sport and we're, we're the little battlers and that you you look at rugby and we're often the trendsetters and the challenge for f- football in this country is how can we be the trendsetters in football even though we are li- the little battlers you know the, the the coaching courses and coaching pathways come down through the federate configured federations and probably from FIFA and we've probably borrowed it from England or you know some of these powerhouse countries and we've th- we've thought that that's the best way to do it and I want to make it, it, it you know technical and tactical still you still got to be able to coach you know Razor says you, you st- his mindset is you still got to, a coach has still got to be trying and be world class in what they're doing at that level you still got to be able to coach the technical and tactical aspects. I suppose that it's underlined by the fact that if, if the people you're coaching aren't listening or they're not able to pick up on what you're putting down, it doesn't really matter how good a coach you are in the technical tactical stuff. You've still got to be able to connect with them. And I think what will happen is the more that the higher up football leagues or coaches come out and propose the importance of this stuff, then countries are going to follow. And I, I kind of sit here and go, but we, we know this. 
we, we can do this. New Zealand produces awesome coaches across so many different sports and activities. We, we know this. We, we can do this. Let's do this ourselves. Let's make this inherently Kiwi. Um, and that, that becomes a challenge because on the one hand, we know the power of this, but on the other, we, we, we are small. We are tiny. We, um, the best athletes, you could argue that the best athletes in this country aren't playing football. They might be playing other sports. And so tactics and techniques are, are important. You know, we saw last night with the Ferns. But I just think for the for 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 100% of the coaches, and especially those that are out there in club land, it is the most important part. Um, and I understand that there are pressures that comes on, especially in around the youth leagues and parents, you know, thinking that we're coaching the next Messi or Dan Carter and, you have to be playing a certain kind of way. So that's another challenging conversation is how do, how do you engage well with parents? But ultimately it all comes back to the, the people. And I think we are in a way turning the Titanic slowly when it comes to coach education and football. I think the more that coach football coaches get out of football and get into talking to other coaches from other sports, and I know you're involved in with football and basketball and a, a lot of other sports, bringing different coaches together so they can share their experiences. And it sort of opens up their eyes from what they experience on a day-to-day basis to this wider world. Yeah. It's it's cool that you mentioned around that collaborative sense of sharing stories and sharing experiences with other coaches from from other sports and yeah, you're right. Like rug, here at rugby, we're working with football, netball, um, and basketball and cricket. We've we've pulled together a group of coaches that um, that we feel that we want to support and develop and grow, and again, so that they can become the best possible coach that they can be, be it at a performance level or be it at clubland or however, whatever their um, situation sets and. What's been amazing around that experience is around the sharing stories that are really similar, but the context is different. Mm. And and by context, I mean the sporting context is different. But but the issue is the same. It doesn't matter if it's if it's a rugby issue or if it's a, a netball issue, like two completely polarizing different sports. The issue that they have is the same and it's focused around, like you said, it's around the people, the person or the athlete that they're, that they're trying to coach um, or try and get through to or trying to get them to comprehend something and or they're, they're trying to deal with chemistry or cohesion within their team and so they can have a conversation around that because chemistry and cohesion, you don't need to know what's happening on the on the basketball court to what's happening on the on the soccer pitch or what's happening between the between the stumps. It's it's a conversation around how do you create that? What do you, what are you doing in your environments? And they're sharing that knowledge, and it's and it's really wicked to see. And so that's some stuff that you've and what you've highlighted is some cool stuff around what you've brought from the rugby scene into football. But what about on the on the reverse side of things? What are some things that you're that you're seeing in rugby, or that you know that's happening in rugby, or maybe other sports that we could probably. Um, lean into the way that football 
or what football is doing to try and better support the athletes? Um, I suppose I, I mean, I go to coaching because it's probably the the area that I'm most comfortable with. And the one thing I'll say about the average football coach, or at least in the experiences of the coaches that I've seen, is they are incredibly well planned. Now, most rugby coaches will nod their heads and go, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, we understand the, the importance of planning. But when I say planned, I mean incredibly well planned. So they'll have their season plan planned out. They'll have every training session in that plan planned out. They'll have every drill that they're going to use in that, in that plan planned out. They And there is inherent differences in the game that lends itself to this, but how are they going to play out from the back? So when the goalkeeper has the ball and he's going to roll it to a player near them, so rather than trying to punt it long, they're going to play out the back. Well, there's infinitely different ways in which you can then do that. And so the coach will work out a way that might best suit their team and then that's a drill or a training session on how to work on that. So the the, the planning detail that goes into it is phenomenal. Um, an example was after I'd set up that meeting with Lee and Razor, the Crusaders had a training session out here at English Park. They wanted to jump on the artificial and just do a, a, a walkthrough type session. So I said, oh, Ray, can you show Lee your training plan for the day? And and Ray had it, you know, it's what you'd expect of that level. And Lee sort of looked at him and said, is that it? Because the air training plans are just ridiculously detailed. And as I say, there's inherent differences in the game. So in rugby, whether you've got 20 people training, 21, 22, you, you, you can adapt pretty easily. But in football, a one person, you know, if you're trying to break into teams, a one person um, extra in a team completely changes the game. So when a football coach is planning a training session, they've almost got to plan it a number of different ways based on how many people they think might turn up to training. It really is, it really is quite incredible. Um, there are other differences. So the really noticeable differences is how early they get their kids to communicate well. And I'm sure that's because of the 360 degree nature of football. But I think the average 12 year old, 13 year old on a football field communicates way more clearly and effectively than on a rugby pitch. I'm, I'm being grossly, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, I understand the um, the exaggeration in these comments, but um, I honestly do believe that. But once again, the three hundred and sixty degree nature of football means that you 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 do generally have to communicate very well because you're often communicating to someone um, who doesn't have eyes in the back of the head, although they do try and teach players to have eyes in the back of the head by swiveling their heads. So every time you'll see a player just about to receive a ball, they'll swivel, check. They call it check over their shoulder, swivel, who's around me. And so the communication really stood out, which then does baffle me as to why football coaches do stand on sidelines and scream and yell so much when the players have quite adept at communicating themselves. But um, that's uh, that's probably another discussion, discussion point. Um, and so the other thing that I alluded to was vision. Uh, I think if you took the average football player and then put them in a defensive line or an attacking shape, 
I'd go, is, is this all I have to concentrate on? And because of the 180 degree of nature of rugby, you know, it's basically what's in front of you or what's beside you, whereas football, it's also what's going on all around you. So they uh, get developed through a lot of game playing. You know, football coaches try and design training sessions that look and feel exactly like the game. And if it doesn't look exactly like the game, then don't do it. That's probably an overarching philosophy they have, which is also interesting for rugby. But they play a lot of games, a lot, a lot, a lot of games. And so in those games, you're developing that communicate those communication skills and the ability to almost see 360 degrees. Yeah, that's it. And I I've talked about it a lot on the on this podcast around kind of basketball and and football being kind of those two sports that you can just play so many games and it doesn't matter if um you you don't have enough players at training you can kind of come up with something on the fly to try and help that where kind of rugby can be a little bit difficult if you kind of don't have have enough um there or maybe that's that's the challenge uh, for rugby that they need to try and come up with more games that you can kind of do with, with smaller numbers. But I want to go back to you talking around communication and, and vision because we see it a lot, especially in rugby, you can go to any, any training and I can guarantee uh, you, the coach will bring in everybody and you'll go, all right, what can we be a little bit better at um, the next time that we go in? And straight away, they'll be like, our comms have to be better. And you're just like, like you face palm your hand, like, cause you're just like, yeah, I know what you're saying, but we need to be real specific around like, what are we wanting to say? What are we wanting to hear? And I recently listened to a podcast by, um, that had a guest on a bike called Doug Lamov, the an educator. And he talked around, comprehension and and understanding and I feel like and I'd be interested to know in um in football terms but in rugby we seem to have this our own language but our language our dialects seem to be different it doesn't matter what club what what region what what area like around just a, a simple tip ball or a release ball out out the back and, and the setup passes the language is different. And so if you bring a lot of groups together, they're, they're not able to probably properly verbalize the type of pass that you're trying to give. And so does football have the same challenge around different, I guess, football terminology with, with dialects around, or is it all still, is it all the same? Uh, good question, and you're probably starting to dip your toe in an area, but beyond my um, <laughs> my experience. But I think I would guess that there would be terminology differences. I think what the difference being is that, as you said, even if you have three, four, five players turn up to a training at a football session, you can still very much work on a lot of stuff. So much so that that is often how they plan their training sessions. So they go from a um, real quick fire, um, they call them rondos. You might see a player standing in a circle, two players in the middle, and you've got to you've got to ping, ping the ball around. I've you know I've often done it in rugby using hands, 
if the player in the middle intercepts, they swap out with the player on the outside. So that's quite often used as a warm-up. Then you go from a small-sided game to a medium-sized game to a full-sized game. And you're trying to transfer a skill from the small side to the big side. Now, the, the, the thing about language is that irrespective of whatever language you are using, the players are using that right through from the warm-up right through to the big-sided game. So by the time you even get to a, the big side of game, a player might have used the word drive, which is the terminology that you would give to a player after they've received the pass and they have space in front of you and they you want them to dribble up the field with the ball, drive. I suppose that you could often use the term punch. Um, arrow, you know, you could say whatever you want, but ultimately the action's the same. Well, if you're in and around that ball player, you, you're saying that doesn't need to be yelled or screamed, just drive, um, turn. And so there will be differences with language, but because of the sheer number of repetitions that they get to train with it, it doesn't become much of an issue internally within a within a team. So does it, their communication style, does that then turn into more, why are you saying it's so great, that it's more like a, a commentary? 100%. It's constant. Because again, there are no rucks, there are no malls, there are no scrums or lineouts. There are no, the, the game is going on. You have to be able to run and communicate at the same time. And you would, if you, if you, if you measured the average amount of words or the volume of words or output of communication on a football player to rugby player, I think in rugby there'd be peaks and troughs. Even taking into consideration the stop-start nature of rugby, so when there's a break in play. But football, it's current, it's constant. I'm continually talking to the probably the four, you know, we, we want to create a diamond, which is the same in hockey, which can be the same in basketball. They create, you know, the balls, they talk about triangles, but you create two triangles and you almost got a diamond. I'm continually talking to those players. And it's not yelling, it's not screaming. I'm just constantly talking to them. And I'm I'm either run, running, if, if we're without the ball, then the players might be running, we're all running towards one side of the field. Now I've got to try and hold my shape. So I'm talking to them and I'm getting spoken to. And so, yeah, I just think that they get brought up and trained to continually communicate with those players around them. And I know the challenges sometimes that we have in rugby, you know, if in a defensive line, plays for all intents and purposes stop. Well, the ball stopped. It's in a ruck. It's not moving anywhere. Teams are trying to recycle that ball really quickly. But ultimately, even if it's a quick ruck ball, you know what? It's three seconds where you're stopped. Well, damn, in football, that's, that's an age. And yet sometimes we still have trouble getting a player to communicate to someone on their inside and their outside. And it could be something to do with spacing. It could be something to who have I got. So it's interesting. It's interesting that um, that football get en enabled players to communicate confidently and and with that capability. Yeah. Do in in your time at mainland football and what you've seen probably and you've probably seen more coaching at kind of with in that high performance stuff. Are they? When they do coach the technical, tactical skills, 
what are the softer skills that are underlying? Is it just that communication and how do they comment? Like how do players know what they're seeing is what they're seeing? Mm. Cause I think that's, that's the tough one. And we talked around, we had a chat with Mike Cron and he was talking about players. They look, but they don't see what's happening. Yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a phenomenal question because, you know, when I, when you're coaching rugby, the the terminology of you know what's what's the picture um you know blow the whistle what do we see here oh we see the narrow and we've got a plus one situation cool what does that mean how we can align well we should be we could be a little bit flatter means we've got a first receiver's got to connect and got to um got to attack the outside shoulder of the first defender to fix him to maintain the plus one or it could be, oh, no, we're, we're minus one. They've got way more defenders. They've got good width. There's no space here, so let's play blind or let's kick him behind. And so the same thing applies in football. It's just that the no two pictures are the same because you've got multiple players operating in a 360-degree game. So it, it's a great question. And is often why during trainings, well, you, you go from a small-sided game, so you're limiting the number of variables which a player can pick up. But ultimately, it's under the same sort of theory in that you can create a little game. You're saying, listen, your pictures that you're going to see might be these three. And if you see this one, this is the action we might be looking for. And if you see this, this is the action. And if you see this. And so it's just the repetitive, repetitive nature of seeing those pictures. It's just that when you put that all together, my God, the, you, then you understand why decision-making football can be so goddamn complex because there aren't no two pictures look the same. Just from the sheer nature of the amount of players and the way, different ways in which they can be running all around, around the field. So I suppose it comes back to general principles as are you in space, are you not? Can you see someone's space, yes or no? Can you get the ball to them, yes or no? Um, or... We know that we've got space on the outside, therefore we have to do A, B, C to maintain that space and then be able to attack it. So the, the general theory is the same as rugby. I just think that the the, the use of pitches becomes that much more complex in football because of the, the game, the 360-degree nature. But how you train it is often the same. Yeah. What What's cool to hear you talk about that and – um, and you mentioned his name earlier. We were talking to Joe, and obviously you know how great an attack coach Joe is. And he was talking his philosophy is like there's got to be space somewhere. It's how do we find it, and how do we get the ball to it? Mm-hmm. That's that's the you can make it as difficult as you want to be, but that's the that's as simple as what it is. There's space on the field somewhere. How do we get the ball there? What's cool to hear is that the. I'm loving, I'm loving hearing the process of we're playing a small game like the Rondos and maybe rugby we need to try and create our version of Rondos and you said that it could be, you know, a a one a one person in the middle type type scenario, as many reps as possible. Then they go into a medium-sized game and then it goes into to the full game. And there's obviously that term around chunking, right, when you were chunking bits of things together and, it sounds like football does that in a really no pitch is the same. You've alluded to it's 365, but we're giving these out, these players an opportunity to chunk the piece of knowledge that we need to give them. 
And so we, we'll, we'll chunk it in a small part. So if it's just our, our immediate four that we work largely most with, and again, for any footballers listening in, my football knowledge isn't amazing, but if if I'm a centre mid, I've there's generally four people that I'm probably going to be talking to to more times than the other ones that I'm not going to be talking to. Then all of a sudden we break it up into a medium sized game. So I can see my immediate, my immediate crew that I'm working with, but then I can see a little bit further going, okay, well, I need to talk to him because then his pitch is going to be looking a little bit different and he seems to be calling it. So he's, so there's a lot of trust in that communication or that relationship. And then we're opening into, now we're going into the bigger game and maybe this is Saturday or Sunday, whenever, how, whenever, whatever the day that they're playing. Then they go into that bigger game, and then now we're playing. We we're focusing, and so that chunking part is, I think, really key. Where sometimes I feel coaches skip some steps, or mm. they don't visit some steps, and so they might start off small, and then they go big, and then be like oh no that didn't work so we'll come back a little bit smaller we'll go big again but then all I'm loving hearing that that chunking of like we'll go small then we'll go bigger now we'll go to the biggest biggest way possible yeah sitting here listening to you say that I think one of the advantages of football is that you can make a very small drill look and feel like the game challenge in rugby is replicating breakdown in a small sided game if the breakdown isn't isn't exactly what you're working on that and and that contact element you know I I str- often struggled to to get players to understand that let's go we're going a hundred percent but the contact's only 20 and that's that's bloody difficult. So then you've got to introduce rules and laws and around, you know, how how you how you're working on contact. Or I just think it's easier to make a, a, a small activities in football look and feel like the game than r- what rugby is because there's those elements in rugby that are um, based in around multiple people occupying the same space, and that can be tackle, ruck, maul, scrum, lineup. Yeah. Uh, one thing, and just while you're talking there, that kind of got me really interested was what was it like coming from Benetton? Um, well, I kind of know what it was like because I was there with you right beside you. Going from Benetton, you knew that you're going to have what you what you had for training that day because medical staff said that these players can train and whatever. And then you came to Sumner preseason and like most clubs, pre-seasons can start off with with a hiss and a roar, flatten out, and then it builds back up. And so you're kind of getting in patches of players. How did you navigate that? Or what was it like navigating that process of professional back into amateur rugby? Um, yeah, good question. I think um, in the, you know in that professional environment, certainly by the time that I'd leave, I was going to leave. You know that you're having your daily medical meetings, and yeah, you, you know well in advance of a training session who's going to be there or who can do what, what are the restrictions are, and therefore planning as a coach is is pretty yeah, it's a it's pretty easy. Although the expectations of making sure every minute is a minute 
well used is important. Although having said that, so it is when you're coaching Tuesday, Thursday, right? Because you've only got a very limited amount of time. It just, when you came back to club lane, it just put the importance of players just being honest. And I suppose that's once again, come back to relationship and saying, you know, it's okay to say to Marty, I've got a bit of a dodgy shoulder and I don't think I can do contact today. And he's not going to think I'm being soft because I've done the mahi, I've done the work and I've, he, he trusts me. And so I suppose I was very fortunate those first two years and that we actually had extremely low levels of injury rates. I thought the boys were bulletproof there at one stage. I mean, that second year when we went all right, um, notwithstanding the significant help we had from our Japanese brothers. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I just think that I can, I think we might've had one or two season ending injuries and, you know, there was Bruno had his eye with an unfortunate incident at Linwood. But, you know, the fact that I can remember that shows that we we just didn't have that many injuries. So I started to think that we were bulletproof. What it did show was the very high, massive importance of an off-season. But, yeah, I think it just meant that the comms from players became so important, eh? Because otherwise you're dealing with it on the fly, that precious pre-training session time when you're trying to get around the boys and having a yarn, you're taking the mickey out of TZ because New Orleans might have lost another game or the Seahawks have just pipped them in a playoff game. Sorry, TZ, um, if you're listening to this. But, you know, you're trying to get around and have those comps and the comps and you have my player rock up going, oh, yeah, you can only do this or that. So you're having to juggle that through your head as you go. Um, but I suppose that's experience. You learn to be able to react on the fly and it's part and parcel of it. Um, notwithstanding the fact that we also had some pretty good physios attached with the club. So any player that would book in to go and see them, you know, you had an online doc and the physio would fill that out. So you get a bit of an idea as we're, as we're coming in um, to a session of who may or may not be. But yeah, the, the couldn't really emphasise enough the importance of players communicating in. And then you knew you knew very early on who was trying to perhaps pull the wool over your eyes and um, the converse, the guys that wouldn't say anything, but you knew they were hurting, so you have to go and get inside their head and say, oh, you know, you're not helping anyone. Just let's take it easy here. Let's be smart. Um, especially at Southern, because, you know, one or two injuries in a position and things became challenging at best. Yeah. And what would probably be your time at, at Sumner? What would be kind of one of the biggest lessons that you learnt around your, your time there? Um, great question. Um, I'll probably go to the last year, the last year coaching. And um, that was that was 2020, the famous 2020 year. And I'll actually take you back to a preseason meeting you me and Razor had. And um it's I, I'm pretty sure by the end of the meeting you're looking at me going, why are you almost trying to pick a fight with a future all black coach? And I was so adamant on trying to um nail the culture for the team. And in the past I'd tried theming. I don't think I was particularly good at it. I needed to work on it. And I thought it got in the way of the message. I thought the the theme was almost dragging people away from the 
the actual thing that you're wanting them to concentrate on. So I said to Ray, I'm not doing a theme. He was arguing back and I was arguing back against him. And I just said, no, I, I just, I just think this is the right thing to do. And then he started talking about shape and I was like, I don't, mate, it, I, it's not important. That didn't go down too well. And, um, you know, I was forever grateful for everything Razor it did for me and what as at my time at the club. Um, but I just knew the year was going to be a challenging because of who we had on the roster. And the biggest goal I said was that at the end of the year, every single player wanted to come back the following year, irrespective of results. And I would probably say that culturally speaking, as a group, it was the strongest group that I'd had in the four years. And yet it was the worst results we'd had. If we didn't finish last, we finished second to last. And I remember just feeling so incredibly proud when the Storm, the Colts, were playing in their grand final. And I think every player who could have attended that game from the seniors to support turned up. Whereas I don't know if that would have happened in the past. And so here we were. By all measures of success, we'd failed because we hadn't won. I think we won one game. And yet on another measure of success, we'd blown it out of the park. And so that just reinforced to me that just the importance of creating a, a tight group. Yeah. Was it a and philosophy that, change that, you, that year that you went through? I certainly felt strong enough internally to be able to embrace it, to be able to go, okay, I don't, you know, I don't really care. I want to win. I'm as competitive a bugger as you're going to meet. But I knew our definition of winning that year had to be slightly different. And I remember getting the boys earlier on in the season and talking about things that we can control or what we couldn't in that tiny little changing room at Mac Bay. And I used cones to talk about the weather and the ref and the opposition and the ground conditions. I said, all that stuff we got, we can't control. So let's just not even discuss it. Yes, they're going to influence us and we'll take the information where we can. So if it's going to rain or if we've got this particular ref, but ultimately, we can control our attitude, our work ethic, and how much fun we're going to have. So let's concentrate on that. So I suppose philosophically, I just really had the confidence to embrace that. Yeah. And 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 we'd rack up some losses, and yet we'd still, we were still having fun. That takes a fair amount of, um, I suppose, internal bravery to be able to go, I, I know, yeah, I, I want to win, but on this scale over here, we're doing okay. Yeah, I think the um, and I remember that season pretty pretty vividly. There was, and like I said, it was it was a pretty results wise, it was a pretty difficult season. But the way that the boys kind of they almost knew what the future had had installed for them, so they're just like, oh, we can we can eat a little bit of humble pie this year, and then we've got a few years that it that it's going to start turning around and and. Maybe that's starting to, that's just starting to happen now, which is which is cool to see. But that conversation that we had had with Razor was it was again there was a little bit there was a bit of me going, shit, is Marty really talking back to to Ray? I think he was he three in a this would have been three three in a row for him or potentially four in a row for him. He's kind of cracked the the Da Vinci code around. Um, 
how to win super rugby titles and he's obviously all the amazing stuff that he did with Canterbury rugby as well here. But what what I learnt in that conversation that with you and Razor, because every conversation that I have with you and with Razor, I'm I'm either generally the the one that doesn't know the most. Um, I leave, leave a little bit feeling a little bit stupid and going, what have I just just said in that meeting? But there was a um, there was a real courage from on your behalf around knowing what your players need needed this year because. I know that when I was the RDO, because I was the RDO for Sumner at that stage, our focus had switched around. We'd finally going through our three-year plan of getting, installing a, a Colts team back into the club. Yeah. It was That was all around making sure that we can recruit within and, and we can generate player player growth and all that type of stuff. And so the, the focus wasn't so much on our Div 1 team as, it, as it's previously been. It had been around making sure that what you're saying we need to make sure that we set up a really good program for these under 21 players so that they start becoming the future of, of our club. And so it was cool to hear, or well, my mission isn't isn't around winning the season. My mission is around making sure that these players return because these are the guys that are, are going to be the senior players for when these Colts players come in. And, and we've just seen... Tommy Ziolo, who you affectionately call TZ, just played his 100th game. Josh Loder did it the year before. So did Josh Toy, who's now coaching at Sumner. I wouldn't, I don't feel like I'd be out of place saying that you're one of their favorite coach, if not favorite coach. And I think that's off the back of the fact that you put any, and you just mentioned it, your competition your competitiveness aside for the greater cause of the team. And so how do you, where did that come from and how do you instill that into your team that you currently have as a CEO for mainland football? Yeah. Um, oh, getting goosebumps, mate. <laughs> you that? Look, I think, um, I'm. I've got a real simple philosophy, eh? And the team here probably sick of me saying it, but my philosophy around everything, and I use rug. I use a training session as an example. Is if you've got people that turn up in the right gear, they turn up early to training, and they want to get stuck in. Then I want to work with you. You, you. Come on, let's go. Let's let's roll the sleeves up. Let's let's embrace this. But if you might rock up, and you could be early, but you're in the wrong kit, or you might not rock up early, or you might not even communicate that you're not going to rock up early, and you've got a little bit of an attitude of, oh, I don't know. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I, that, well, I struggle. You know, I'll, I might try and help to go, come on, come over this side, get with the program. But if you don't, then I, you know. I don't know if, if this is the best environment for you. And that year, that was my way of paying back all those people who turned up every Tuesday, every Thursday, every Saturday and gave it everything they had. So I wanted to be as competitive as I could for those people. You know, the likes of yourself, John O. Anderson, Suckers was in there, Marshall Suckling, and what a sensational human being he is. Um, 
and 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 then the players, you know, um, Joshy Toy, Tommy, you know, I could just rattle them all off. I Joel Ravages of this world, they so put their bodies on the line. They did what was asked of them, and I just um, I, it took a lot to just go. No, no, I owe you this. This is my. This is me now wanting to give back as much as I can for you guys. And that hopefully one day this might lead to not only the success that we had that year in creating a wicked environment, but some success that may mean that you get to play in a semi or in a final. Because if some never get there, then holy Harry, that's gonna that's gonna rock, you know. And that was the vision. Is I might not be there, but you, I really want you boys to, and I think this is the way that I can help. And so that's what I pretty much use in every day around here, right? Um, we had a lot of staff turnover in 2021. We very carefully went out and recruited and bought people in the building that we wanted in the building. And the people here, man, they they show up and they turn up early that with the right kit, but with the wicked attitude. And so I, I only can only operate with gratitude. And um, because... When the team here, we roll up our sleeves, we really roll up our sleeves. Yeah, we make mistakes just like everyone, right? But um, it's the same sort of mindset that I have. It's it's me trying to create an environment. And if I can go back to Ray, because ultimately he's the one that created me, my rebellion, probably um, <laughs> going back at him, was when I first came back to New Zealand, I was actually fortunate enough to spend um, the NPC campaign with Canterbury. And it was probably the best and worst thing I ever did. The best because I finally realized an environment that I've been dreaming of existed. And the worst is that it took me so goddamn long to be able to find it. But Johnny McNichol was leaving New Zealand to go to the Scarlets. And so we had his leaving dinner and he got up and he burst into tears before he'd even said anything. And um, it was powerful, so powerful. And he he just said, uh, you know, thanks to everyone. Then he said to Ray, he said, Ray, you've got no idea what it is that you've created where on a day off, I'm absolutely gutted. I hated days off because it means I didn't, I couldn't come into work. I didn't get to come into work. And I just thought, holy shit, imagine being able to create an environment like that. Can you imagine? So people aren't hanging out for the weekend. People are hanging out for Monday. Yeah. And so that's what you try and that's the vision, right? Is like, how can I give it so people are trying to fizz into work on a on a Monday, or how can you can create it so people are fizzing into a training on a Tuesday or a Thursday? No, that's that's a that's an awesome story that you share, and and I think that's a um that's a cool cool note kind of finish that part off on, and we'll jump into our our quick fire segment. So you're inviting three people to dinner. Who are they and what are you cooking? Now, you've been over in Italy and you've talked around how important food is. So it will have to be something something delicious, I'm, I'm imagining. I'd probably go pasta in Bianca. It's just pasta cooked al dente, just to the bite, not mush. A little bit of salt little bit of olive oil and a little bit of parmesan cheese. That's it. Simple food, cooked well. Probably throw in a few beverages, maybe a little bit of a salad. But keeping things simple. And who I would invite, um, I've actually heard you ask this question to every one of your guests, and I've never actually thought of how I'd answer it myself. So I am 
I, I'm mindful that this is called quick fire. Um, I'd, if I if I'd go geek, I'd probably go. Can I get Pep Guardiola, Wayne Smith, and Sir Alex Ferguson round the table? There is a slight, and if I couldn't, I'd sub out one of them and maybe get Pete Carroll in from the Seahawks. Or if I couldn't sub in, I'd get um, Sean McVay from the LA Rams. You know, there's a bit of a coaching vibe. Um, or pop, get pop in there. Yeah, I, I suppose I'm just still a bit of a coaching tragic. So I'd I'd have a come up with a combination of those three. Yeah, no, that's that's wicked. Uh, what's one of your favourite sporting memories? Now it could be as a competitor, as a coach, or or as a spectator. The Munster Ground Tymon Park had been redeveloped. They'd increased the capacity to nearly forty thousand, and somehow Benetton was playing the first game against Munster at its opening. It was the first round of the Heineken Cup. And we ran out to um, do the warm-up, and it was so loud, I had to whistle. I, I, you couldn't – if you could yell into someone's ear, but other than that, I had to whistle because I'd run the warm-ups. And the hairs of my head stood up for the whole time. It was – I'll never forget it. I'll never forget that we went up 10-0 in the first eight minutes, and then Munster scored 40 unanswered points. But um, – yeah, that was a pretty pretty special moment. No, that's a cool one. Uh, who's a coach, mentor, or teacher that's had an impact on you? Gavin Head from Queensland Rugby. I am everything. He got me into my coach, as I mentioned earlier, my coaching badges. He was well ahead of his time. He was a visionary. He annoyed the shit out of me because he continually pushed me to the edge of my ability. And at the time, I thought he was being a buddy pain in my ass. But now I look back and go, he just believed in what I was capable of. Um, and obviously, more recently, just the opportunity to even have one conversation with Razor um, was was incredibly enlightening. No, that's that's cool. Um, what's one bit of advice you'd give a young Marty starting out on his coaching career again? It's all about the people. Um, I thought I had coaching Saster in my first year. I took a team that had finished last year's, you know, the previous however many years we made it to the grand final. I thought it was all about me. Never mind the fact that the team was stacked with a whole lot of ex premier grade players. And I thought it came down to tactics and techniques and yet um, it was all about the people. So invest in people skills, be curious about people and then pick one area of the game and try and be world-class at it, not be like me and try and be, you know, the master of all and the, Sorry, the yeah, joker of all and the master of none. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's a good bit of advice. What would be your go-to activity or drill if you were to um head down to Mac Bay tomorrow and, and run a session with the with the lads? Oh, I'd have to be offside touch, incorporating a little bit of football and rugby. Yeah. Massive amounts of energy, enthusiasm, try and get it so people are vomiting. That was when I was generally happiest. Yeah. Awesome. And what does being a coach mean to you? Oh, mate, I think the term, the term, uh, yeah, it, it can mean so many different things. Ultimately, it's, I alluded to it before, helping an individual or a group of people um, transcend what they think is capable of, of themselves. 
Um, and that incorporates creating an environment for them to be able to do that, you know, nailing all aspects of that. Yeah, awesome. Mate, um, thank you so much for it's probably been been I probably should have had you on on sooner, but um to have you on now is awesome. And I think it's it's a cool opportunity to kind of thank you as well. Like you've been a huge, um, huge mentor to me. I've learned a lot about not only myself, but I myself did kind of what you did. I didn't spend 10 years in, in the UK, but I knew I had to go over and just had a look and experience. And that was you were the inspiration to that. So um mate, yeah, cheers for today. Thanks for sharing your story and, and your wisdom with with our listeners. And um yeah, I'm sure I owe you a beer uh very soon. <laughs> I'll gladly take you up on that, Rick. Um look, as I said, the 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 list of people who you've had on here is just absolutely incredible. I think you're you're nailing this, mate. I listened to your first one. It was a little bit ropey. I was going to give you a little bit of feedback, but I thought, no, nah, I might ease it. But you're making this natural. You make it easy. And I do understand that we've probably got a relationship that's gone back one or two years, but um, I love what you're doing here. So um, some so good work and thanks for having me on. Oh, no, I appreciate it. Well, it looks like I owe you a brown envelope as well for those kind, those kind words. So um, I'm sure we'll catch up soon, mate. Cheers, bud. It's always great whenever I get a chance to catch up with with old coaching friends and and buddies. And and so, like I mentioned, Marty and I go back a, a few years. And and the thing that I love about Marty as a as a coach and as a man is the fact that when I first met him that day at, at Believ, he was really curious around who I was, what my motivations are as a as a rugby coach. At that stage, I was a rugby coaching rugby before I became the RDO and and kind of what made me tick who my family was and and all those types of stuff and there was probably something that I'd never experienced as a coach or as a, as a player before somebody who's showing interest to in me and and I think that's that's come come out throughout this conversation with with Marty is that it's about the people and and it's awesome to hear that he's he's taken what he's learned through his rugby experience and started to implement that into football. But I kind of want to go back to some of the stuff that he's he's learned from football around making sure that we're planning. And we talk around plans a lot at our coaching courses and how important those are. And so leaning into that's really important. But just how can we make that game sense approach? How can we chunk things up? And I think that's the, the thing that for coaches in, in rugby, every coach listening is that we have to be really curious around how we can, um, or curious and creative around how we can kind of adapt things into um, into our our sporting sense or our sporting context. And so, um, yeah, I just love this, this conversation with Marty and all the ones that we had. And so um, if you enjoyed it, if, if you know that coaches that you, you work with or coaches that you know will enjoy it, uh, please, would love for you to sh- share this link um, or the, the coaches corner link to, to these coaches. And I uh, also love your, love the feedback and, and any ratings that you can, wherever you're listening to this, um, this podcast. And so looking forward to the next few guests that we've got coming up. So stay tuned and we'll chat soon.